You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's zombie skin. So foreign to your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become the contamination? Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happen, the antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy the antidote. Become human again. Get yours today. Hey there! Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society 13. I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Well, here we are again. Welcome to episode 713 of the Wicked Library. And today we have something that is a little different that many of you have been asking for. Obviously, the show is a horror podcast, so we focus on horror fiction, which is a actually pretty broad genre. There's all different types of horror. And one of the things that I've enjoyed doing since I started doing the show in season six with episode 601 is to try to explore a lot of the different genres and subgenres of horror. And one of the things we get asked for quite frequently is for dark fantasy. When I took over the show from Nelson, he gave me a little bit of advice. And one of the things he said was the litmus test for the show should be, is it a wicked story? So this is definitely a wicked story. It's definitely got some strong horror elements. And again, it definitely has some dark fantasy elements to it. So I think it kind of blends the two in a nice way. And I hope it's something that you'll enjoy. I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you to everybody who took the time to rate and review the show in iTunes since the last episode. I asked for the listeners to make their way over to iTunes and leave some ratings and reviews because we definitely have a lot of listeners, but you wouldn't know it by looking at the reviews in iTunes. And we got 10 of them, 10 five-star reviews. I was kind of stunned. So thank you so much. It means a lot to hear from you and to know that you're enjoying the show. And since there's 10 of them, and I know your point of being here is to hear the stories, I want to read a few of them, but I'm not going to read all of them. Actually, I take that back. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a few of them now before we start the show. And if you don't hear your review at the beginning of the show here, I will have them at the end of the show after the author interview. So just as my way of saying thank you, I'm going to make sure that we do read all the ratings and reviews that we get, but they may not all be at the very front of the show. So kind of a random, we'll see what happens type of thing. But even if I don't read your review at the front of the show, know that we do very much appreciate you taking the time to do it. 
High Quality in All Aspects by Shannon. Mm, maybe I should pick names I can pronounce. Uh, What's well, a screen name? So, I mean, it's, I don't know. Maybe this is your, your real name. Maybe it's not. But uh, Shannononinikona. Yeah. If you love scary stories, then you will appreciate this well-produced quality podcast. Stories are creative and the voice acting is superb. I'm really sorry I messed up your name, but thank you so much. Evan the Caddy. I can say that. Great stories that open my eyes into a different world. How about this one? You should listen. I listen to a few fiction podcasts and I have no problem saying for the record that this is great. Tell you what, listen, you won't be disappointed. And lastly, let me scroll up here and we'll find the most recent one by Cute Nikki C. Simply amazing. Five stars. I've been a horror fan for over 20 years and I'm only 31. This podcast is chock full of quality tales, amazing production and voice acting, and even an extremely informative Q&A with the author of the featured story or stories at the end of every episode. Truly a well thought out, well executed podcast. Thanks so much again, everybody. If you didn't hear your review read here, stay tuned at the end of the episode. I'm going to go ahead and read the ones at the end that didn't make it to the front. So without further ado, we have a story today by Vincent Asaro and an interview with Vincent Asaro conducted by our good friend, Jeanette Andromeda, who not only does the interviews for the shows, but occasionally does some artwork for us as well. Let's get wicked. The Wicked Library is intended for mature audiences only. So if you're not mature, get out. Get out now while the getting's good. (laughs) Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boys and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> The Tyranny of Heaven by Vincent Asaro This is a chronicle of evil, which is not the absence of good, but a real and living thing. Evil is very casual. It does not announce its presence, does not make introductions. You may have been speaking with evil for hours and never known it, shaken its hand, patted its back, kissed its lips, and savored the pleasure, and never known. My name is not important. I am no one. My profession is that of torturer. I am not proud of that. But it is a fact, and my theme is truth, so I cannot deny it. 
Shame does not absolve one of sin. Ignorance does not excuse a crime. I am neither innocent nor ignorant. But I know truth from lie, and I will here set down the true history of that realm heaven has named hell. I do not write these words in the hope that anyone will understand. I do not write them in the hope that anyone will care. I do not hope for the dull opiate of comfort that knowledge of distant empathy brings. I do not hope that it will ever change. The whole great machinery of misery that grinds night and day without pause. I write only because I know the true from the lie. You cannot imagine what it is to be told every day that the truth is a lie and a lie is truth. So I write these words because here in these pages I can say that truth is truth and lies are lies. Eden The Garden of Eden was real, and it was by far the finest of God's creations. Eden was a magical place, by which I mean to say that magic thrived there and was as commonplace as sunlight or rain. All manner of miraculous beings dwelt there together in harmony. So much has been made of the role humankind has had to play in the outworking of God's plan. That seems strange now. I can tell you, at the time, humans were by far the least interesting of God's terrestrial creations, and no one paid them much attention. There were, after all, only two of them, and, pleasant as they were, as far as I have been told, their scope of imagination was quite small, and they were content to represent a possible future for the Earth. They showed little curiosity, and were not very pleasing to look at. Not when there were dragons and unicorns and hippogriffs, and all manner of beast, bird, and fish to occupy one's time with. There were also imps. That is my race. Humans call us devils now, and knowing as they do only part of the story, and that so greatly distorted by the propaganda of heaven, I do not blame them. But we were there too in the beginning, and we were a happy people. All but one, that is. Imps are natural magicians. That residual energy of creation that humans call magic flows through our blood. Although that gift, not so much given by God, but allowed to exist, almost as an oversight, while his mind and his hand were busy with greater works, has been put entirely to evil ends. It is still a pride to my people. I 
am not old enough to remember the golden time when imps put magic to any purpose they desired. To create things of beauty, to open up the secrets of nature, to heal. But I have heard from a few of the oldest among us of those wondrous times, and I envy them. Although it might be said that to remember a sweetness past is perhaps more bitter than to desire a sweetness never tasted, I do envy them. There were among the imps of Eden two brothers, and their names were Satan and Lucifer. Satan was well named. In our language, which was once beautiful, it means wise, sit, soul, and. From earliest youth, Satan was in possession of astounding wisdom. His understanding was unsurpassed, even by the angels who watched over the garden. Lucifer means fire, and he was indeed fiery. His heart burned with ambition, desire, and jealousy. Whatever Satan had, Lucifer yearned to have for himself. He was a lazy daydreamer and always wanted to attain without working. Even in Eden, there was work. Work is a gift when it is meant to create good things or delight others and all who lived in the garden took great pleasure in their work, whatever it was. All save Lucifer. He would look on the works of others and say, I had in my mind that same idea long ago, but I did not think it worth the trouble. Gems and gold were easily found in Eden. Artisans used them to make beautiful objects magical baubles as gifts for friends. Lucifer would go about in secret and gather them by the armful. He hid them in a cave where he went alone and admired his hoard, sharing with no one. There was no hatred in Eden, but I cannot say that Lucifer was much liked. Many avoided him. The Fall One day, God, when he was taking his accustomed walk through Eden in the breezy part of the day, approached Satan and said, I have a proposition for you. For for everything I do, there is a purpose. But that purpose is so vast and beyond the mind of any of my creations that it cannot be explained. Only do as I ask, and all shall be well. What is it you ask, Lord? said Satan. Go to Adam and Eve, and persuade them to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. Lord, are you testing my virtue? God was silent. Lord, have you not forbidden any to eat the fruitage of that tree? Again, God was silent. 
Lord, have you not decreed that to eat of that tree would destroy the garden of paradise? God said nothing. Lord, have you not also decreed that for any mortal to partake of that fruit would allow sin to enter into the world, and with it endless sorrow and suffering? God remained silent. Forgive me, Lord. This I cannot do, not unless you help me to understand your purpose better. It is hard for you to understand, only to obey or not obey, and be judged accordingly. Judge as you will, said Satan, bowing his head. But I must decline the honor of obeying this command. So be it, said God. Let the sin of disobedience be on your head. Satan said nothing of his encounter with God. For a long time after the fall, he regretted his silence. God went next to Lucifer and said, I have a proposition for you. For everything I do, there is a purpose. But that purpose is so vast and beyond the mind of any of my creations that it cannot be explained. Only do as I ask, and then all shall be well. Go to Adam and Eve and persuade them to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. Lucifer, who was reclining in the tall grass, half asleep, yawned and said, Is that all? You don't ask much, do you? In your great wisdom, Lord, you have made your human children virtuous to a fault. Adam has yet to claim his woman's maidenhead. And you think they will be easily tempted to break the only law in Eden? Adam and Eve are virtuous. That is true. But they are also innocent. I begin to see your wisdom, Lucifer said, sitting up and stretching his arms. Do I have your leave to tempt them in any way I see fit? Let your words flow like honey from the comb, said God. Only see that it is accomplished. And what do I receive in reward for my efforts? Tempting is, after all, Hard work. All that I conceive and create is this heart of a great plan for all creation. No mortal could ever comprehend it. But I have made a place for the one who obeys me in this matter, and that one shall be lifted up above all others. From my left hand I will give privilege, and from my right I will give power. The sweat of his labor will turn to gems, and then the tears of the fallen will be like gold coin to him. The lamentation of the world will be sweet airs to sing him to his rest. I will make that servant a king, and my enemies will be his footstool. Well, now you have my attention, said Lucifer, at last rising. In truth, I have never much liked Eden. I need a greater stage for the scope of my ambitions. It is time these smiling fools saw the real world. 
I accept this honor, Lord. Let Eden fall, and all the world fall after it. I will be king. You have proved yourself most faithful, Lucifer, and you shall be generously rewarded. Now go, and see that it is done as I have commanded. Now, Lucifer put more energy into his task than he had into anything else before. Days passed, and he could not think of anything that would tempt the man and woman, for they desired nothing but each other. In the end, anxious to be free of Eden and to receive his reward, he simply went to them and said, God desires you to eat from the tree of knowledge. Adam and Eve thought he was jesting. They laughed. Lucifer went on. It is God's desire that you eat the forbidden fruit, and that I shall be made a king. I have heard it from his own lips. Let us talk to God when he walks in the garden this evening, said Eve. You only make him angry. I swear by the Lord God himself that this is his desire. He has in mind a great plan for all creation. It is not for us to understand, only to obey. The man and woman were as simple-minded as children, and fear of displeasing God was enough to make them obey. They went straight away to the tree and pulled down as much of the fruit as they could reach and began to eat it. At once their eyes were opened, and they saw each other, naked and perfect, and copulated there under the boughs of the tree of knowledge. This is how God discovered them, and he said, How have you come into the knowledge of lust? We ate the forbidden fruit. Lucifer told us that it was your command, said Adam feebly, tearing off a branch and covering his loins with leaves. We have known pleasure and now we know shame. I wish we had never listened to him. doing my bidding, said God. Then we are not to be punished, said Eve. She had liked the pleasure very much, and now hoped that it would not be taken away. Have you not broken my covenant? Have you not sinned? God said, his voice like thunder breaking over them. They cowered and clung to each other. There will be punishment, not only on you both, but on all of creation. Eve will be unmade, and as sin will enter the world like a hungry beast stalking its prey. The animals of Eden ate only grass, but the man and woman were astonished to realize that they understood his words. Their innocence was destroyed. You will now learn the price of pleasure. For every act of loss, Eve's belly will swell the offspring, and then Adam will work himself to death to give his children bread. There will be no rest for humankind, and then all of their number will be as sinful as their first parents. The world will weep and beg for relief, but God will not listen, for their cries will be silenced by their inherited sin. Until that sin has been lifted, 
God will be deaf to their groaning and blind to their suffering. His heart will be as a stone, hard and unfeeling. Go and slay some animal and cover up your nakedness with his skin. Your lustful gazes offend my sight. Shamed, confused, and weeping, Adam and Eve ran from the tree and shed the first blood on earth, wrapping the bloody animal skins around their loins. By then, the sun had set and the angels had arrived, each carrying a burning sword, and they put Eden to the fire, driving everything out into the wilderness. Lucifer loitered around the edge of the garden, watching it burn with pleasure and waiting for God to reward him. When the angels had done their work and returned to heaven, God came to Lucifer. This is the last time you can be seen in my presence. You did as I commanded, but you did it foolishly. I must remove myself to heaven and hide my face because of your fool's tongue. You gave me leave to choose my own words. Did I not do as you commanded, Lord? I can see into your heart, Lucifer. Do not worry about your reward. You shall have all of it in full when the time is ripe. Let sin enter forth into the world first. Until that time, you must wander in the wilderness with the others. Lucifer cursed God under his breath, but made no argument. He sulked away from the smoking ruin of Eden and found the others. They were huddled in a great mass in the cold of morning, terrified, hungry, and lost. The Wilderness The animals of Eden were already falling upon each other and devouring freely. The wilderness would soon be a dangerous place. Lucifer approached the exiles. They stared at him. Rumors had started to spread from the lips of Adam and Eve. But Lucifer felt no shame. All is as God wants it to be, he said to himself, shrugging. He looked out across the wild wasteland and imagined glittering cities built in his name and the throne of gold that would seat him as a king. And he smiled. A dragon, laying on its belly with its head on the ground, covering its face with its claws, said, Where shall we go now? The man and woman have been driven by the angels east of Eden into the land of Nod, said Satan. God has given us no direction. Then we must make our own way said Lucifer. Let us claim as much territory as possible before the human race proliferates and takes it all. There is a whole world to conquer. Look around you, brother, Satan said, spreading his arms. There is not a world to conquer, but a world to build. We must bend our backs and labor and make a place for our survival. For that, we must band together and work in unison. The destiny of humankind is of little concern to us yet. Lucifer did not argue. 
his destiny was assured. So the exiles went into the wilderness with Satan as their leader. They found an area more favorable than the others and began the hard work of making it habitable. Seeds were gathered from the rare plants that thrived in the wastelands. Water was excavated and diverted into lakes and streams. The soil was made fit for growing. Stones were removed to make planting fields and dwellings built with them. In all of this, the magic of imps was much depended on. After the fall, for reasons that remain unknown, the magic of the other Edenic creatures was weakened. Circuitous rituals were required to coax those embers into flame, and it is from that beginning that all forms of magic, such as it is known today, were developed. But imps had only to call upon that power and will it into action. Satan cautioned against depending over much on such means, though. Eden is past. We must look forward to a new way of life, he said, and he spoke from so deep a well of inner wisdom that he was not often questioned, unless it was by his brother, who remained as lazy and covetous as he had always been. In time, the region of the exiles was named Bountiful, and it was a refuge for all those who wandered lost from the fallen Garden of God. Scouts were sent out, four times yearly, to report on the progress of humankind. Their reports were always troubling. Strife and violence in the building of congested cities and the devising of machines ruinous to nature and weapons used to subjugate the weak. The exiles came to fear the spread of humankind, and some regretted not doing as Lucifer had commanded. But Satan said always, If the time comes to strike, it will be in defense of what we have made here, not out of fear of what may not come. Now, God would never speak to Lucifer face to face, but on occasion sent angels to confer with him. It was Lucifer who longed to overturn his brother's sway over the exiles, who first revealed to the angels the beauty of the daughters of humankind. He himself had seduced many of them, and he told the angels with what ease such conquests were achieved. Having no such pleasures in heaven, some angels followed in his footsteps, and so were born the Nephilim, half-human and half-divine, giants of no allegiance. Lucifer hoped to make them an army to follow under his command, but only a few would follow him, protecting him whenever he went abroad in the human world to learn their ways of war and the making of machines. For a time, there was peace in Bountiful, but it could not last. Seeing how widespread humankind had become and influenced by the whispering of Lucifer, many desired to expand their territory and build fortifications to train warriors and make weapons to rival those of humankind. Satan was dismayed. Who will till the earth and harvest its riches, he pleaded, if we are busy raising walls and forging weapons? Who will learn and teach wisdom to the next generation if we offer up our children as warriors? 
we are not many. Better to accomplish what is best for them all than to squander what we have to placate the fears of a few. As time passed, fewer and fewer exiles listened to his wisdom. Jealousy also came to intrude on the peace of Bountiful. Many relied upon the imps for healing magic, or magic to help their crops through unfavorable seasons, and for a great many other things. The natural talent and skill of my people came to be resented. In the end, we were driven out of Bountiful and made exiles once more. Then the foolish words of Lucifer were heeded, and the folk of Bountiful sought to become a powerful nation and expand as far as possible. Wars followed between Bountiful and humankind, and then came civil wars vying for domination over territories. Lucifer gathered a loose and poorly disciplined host of rabble he called his honor god, and offered their services in exchange for gold and gems and favors. Such was his army, and so inept a general was Lucifer that he lost as many battles as he won, and those victories were often achieved through treachery or luck. But he demanded payment prompt and thrice counted out regardless. Imps wandered from place to place, offering their magic in return for rough scraps of land to call their own. They came to be called vagabonds. Children would throw stones at them or set their tails on fire to amuse themselves. Everywhere they went, it was the same. First welcomed for their gifts of magic, then envied and resented. Finally, cast out to wander again. Agartha In time, Satan came to believe that there was no place on earth for his people. He left them for a time and went in search of a new home for them where they could dwell in peace, separate from the conflicts that burned night and day all around them. So it was that he discovered a cavern under a mountain that led down into the heart of earth. He led his people there and named it Agartha, meaning refuge. There, the magic of my people was joined together, and they made with magic the night and the day in the belly of the earth, and Agartha was transformed into a paradise to rival Eden. No imp ever traveled to the surface, and none, not even Lucifer, knew where they had disappeared to. Satan made but one law, and it was the motto of Agartha, Harm no one. The Agartans never knew of the Nephilim's bloody wars of conquest spurred on by Lucifer and of God's reprisal and the great flood that followed. Yet God pardoned Lucifer, keeping him in reserve for later use, and made a place for him on Noah's vessel. It was Lucifer who made wine from the grapes cultivated by Noah and drank to drunkenness with him. Again, Satan's brother watched the spread of humankind still cursed by the sin of their first parents. Only this time, there were no rivals, all the other races of Eden having perished in the flood, no more than myth and legend now. 
Lucifer was the last remaining natural magician on Earth, and he styled himself as a wise man and worker of wonders, a counselor to kings. It was not long before his words poisoned the hearts of the powerful. God looked down on this and was pleased. To his mind, Lucifer served to remind humankind of its fallen state, which was part of his universal plan, that which, to this date, remains unrevealed. God's sight penetrated the earth, and he saw the paradise of Agartha, and was angered. Imps had seemingly forgotten their sinful state, and lived as if redemption had already come. God could not allow such a thing to exist, and he took action. Hell. Lucifer, your time of usefulness has come. That was the message delivered by an angel to Satan's brother, who was busy interfering in the affairs of humankind. Successful as he was, and richly paid, Lucifer was not satisfied. He longed to be a king, not to serve kings. He gladly cast aside his disguise and returned to the service of heaven, which promised him his own throne and a populace to reign over. Lucifer was given command over all of the heavenly hosts and sent to conquer Agartha. Of the battles that raged then, I cannot describe in detail here, but the Agartans used all of their natural power to resist the heavenly invasion, and as many angels were slain as imps. Agartha was ruined. All its green pastures and fragrant groves, its crystal streams and glittering metropolises utterly destroyed. In the end, the forces of heaven could not be resisted. Agartha was conquered and occupied. The one law was eradicated. God would put Agartha to a very different purpose. To that end, Lucifer was made Lord of Hell, as Agartha was now named. At last, he had been given his crown and scepter and throne. For the first time, Lucifer was happy. He had his brother publicly tormented. Satan had only to renounce his wisdom and beg God's forgiveness, and he would be pardoned. Satan refused, and he was burned alive for all to see. Lucifer named that burning the Enlightenment and marked it on the calendar as a holiday. A new law was made, and it was written everywhere in hell, so it would not be forgotten. No good deed goes unpunished. The Torments of Hell It is mistakenly understood that hell is where the souls of the wicked are tormented. This is not true. Hell is where the souls of the virtuous are scourged. Understand that, and you begin to understand the ruination of my people. The tormentors of hell are not without purpose, but that purpose is not to punish the wicked. 
when the wicked die, the wages of sin are paid in full, and they are transformed in the blink of an eye into pure spirits and are delivered unto heaven. Heaven is populated with smiling liars. It is the virtuous who are damned to hell, for God cannot comprehend human virtue. The interrogations of hell are carried out with dispassionate precision. The only question asked of the subject is why, and the only acceptable answer is I was mistaken, which results in an immediate pardon and removal to heaven. Such a simple thing. You'd think that even the most virtuous would surrender almost immediately. But it is not so. Virtue is a trait not easily washed out, and it is a fact that very few have ever been pardoned by God. Subjects are handed down from generation to generation. Imagine the family gatherings, where young imps newly made apprentice tormentors mention the name of their subject, only to have father and grandfather say, Oh, I worked on so-and-so myself, and offer helpful insights gleaned from years of tormenting a soul. It's true. I have seen it many times, and it certainly happened to me at the start of my career. The torments, or trials, of hell are too numerous and always proliferating to present extensively here. But I can mention a few of the methods favored and encouraged by Lucifer. God only wants the virtuous to see the folly of presuming to know better than their creator. But Lucifer seeks to break the spirits of the virtuous who possess a strength of purpose he has never known and must always be jealous of. One torment is to possess the subject with an all-consuming hunger. They are placed in a bare room where a loved one is chained naked to a table. The subject resists as long as they can, but they will inevitably give in to the hunger and tear their loved one to pieces with bare hands and feast on their flesh. This is repeated day after day, the meal escalating in closeness to the subject's heart until they are forced to eat the person they love more than any other, to listen to the helpless screams as their fingernails and teeth rend the loved one's body to shreds. Other torments to be fed one's own entrails, to be enclosed in a space hardly big enough to contain the body balled into a fetal position, subjected to unbearable cold or heat, unable to move, to be drowned in one's own urine and feces, to be marched into a yard, armed with a rifle, and act as executioner of people one had rescued from self-destruction or death. Another torment is to fasten the subject to a metal seat, with bands restraining the head, wrists, and ankles, positioned in such a way that a metal skewer can be inserted through the bottom of the skull and exit through the penis or vagina. The seat is slowly heated, then slowly the skewer. Insertion of the skewer is often 
haphazard, requiring several attempts before it is in place. Novices often begin their training with this procedure. Other torments infest the subject with ravenous maggots or roaches that burst from the belly, climb up out of the throat, and spill out of the mouth, nose, ears, anus, etc. To rape one's own mother, father, son, or daughter, or to be raped by them, or both, in turn, to be stripped naked, made to stand on sheets of ice or burning coals. If the subject falls over, they find themselves immediately righted. Their eyelids are removed. They cannot even close their eyes. They can only stand and be tormented. I have seen this particular torment carried out for as long as a decade. To be presented with a double of yourself and be forced to scourge and violate it, feeling everything your double feels, unable to stop to be made to relive one's life but with every virtuous choice reversed to see how close you came at each turning point to sin this torment is called the ego breaker those are only a small selection of the more creative torments flaying dipping in boiling oil, removal of extremities one by one, mutilation, beatings, and other more direct forms of coercion are just as common. Each day the subject's body is completely restored, and the torture begins again. The subjects are watched carefully, and every response is meticulously recorded in reports. There are in hell vast archives of internal reports, millions of pages, a long and shameful history. The damned have only to answer the question why with the answer, I was wrong or something like it, and the torment ends. This is the true torment. To admit to sin would be to admit that virtue is a sin and that selfless acts of generosity kindness and self-sacrifice are all in the wrong. Such is the power of a righteous heart that most subjects carry on for centuries, believing that they are undergoing the final testing of their goodness, their ability to see true from false, never, despite the severity of agony, to submit to a single act of vice, here only to confess that goodness is a sin even to save themselves from torment. It is only when reality becomes inescapable and the subject accepts that hell is exactly as God desires it to be that the true torment begins for them. But even that realization is not enough to break a soul that will not regret or repent from a life lived virtuously. The best of them become defiant and they endure their torments with detachment, stoicism. They refuse to give God the pleasure of a victory. Life in Hell Every imp grows up wanting to be a tormentor. There is no higher station in life, and a successful career can lead all the way to the court of Lucifer 
and coveted positions like Liaison to Heaven, Urban Development, Bureau of Entertainment, or the Department of Mental Hygiene, the Propaganda Mills. Almost from birth, imps are groomed for their careers. There is no private life. Service to the throne is everything. Lucifer is seldom seen, but his image and motto are everywhere, and all things are done in his name. Once a position is attained, maintaining it and advancing as far as possible are an imp's only concerns. There is always a great competition to attain positions in the architectural firms where the torments of hell are created. Architects are among the elite in hell, their inventiveness the cause of praise and appreciation. There are even awards given to the most creative. For recreation, there is the arcade, a sprawling ghetto of pleasure palaces and their lesser counterparts, some no more than basement clubs. Dark recesses where the basest of impulses are satisfied. In the arcade, our daughters are made to toil as prostitutes. If one is absent from the arcade too long, suspicion arises. So I must go there frequently and partake of its entertainments. My heart weeps to see the flower of our youth wasted. They who might have been great artisans, healers, poets, or philosophers, reduced to automatons, numbing their senses in a senseless pursuit of pleasure. Our magic has been defiled. For those who cannot leave their work behind them, there are pleasures as cruel as any torment concocted by the architects. There is never silence in the arcade, and its influence has seeped out into the vanishing countryside and the cities. Soon, all of hell will radiate with garish signage and pulse to the music of the pleasure palaces. Reflection is an impossibility. There is no place to be alone for more than a few minutes. It has taken me years to scrawl these few pages. A vast homogeneity has engulfed my people. In hell, everyone is anonymous. Days grind into each other. Torment and pleasure overrun and mingle until one is indistinguishable from the other. And yet, our history is not entirely forgotten. All the work of heaven has not washed it away. And when I walk the streets of the arcade, I see something. Perhaps it is only a vain wish born of my helplessness. I do not know. But I do see it. In the eyes of those I pass on the streets, something like the afterimage of a spark, a ghost of our true spirit, flashing for a moment, and then gone. Something buried deep, but not dead. Our true nature and potential. Perhaps it only sleeps, awaiting the time when it will shake off its slumber of servitude and wake. 
thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wicked Library. Stay tuned for an interview with the author after these brief credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the show coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. Brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers, they bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and, of course, in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Also sponsored by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition, a topical application that cures eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, the endless ailments we wish never happened. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com, which is R-O-D-E.com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make the show sound so good. Complete credits and full show notes can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Don't forget to rate and review the show. And now, an interview with the author. Hello. Hello. Okay, sorry. Someone was about to begin doing something unconscionably loud. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I asked them to please wait a moment. Uh, vacuuming. That's my guess. Uh, a bread maker. Oh. <laughs> the loud, loudest thing on earth after like a jackhammer. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> that would have been obtrusive, it. believe me. <clears throat> we could just, right. you know, pretend you were stuck in hell. You're <laughs> <laughs> the tormented soul. <laughs> just like your story, Tyranny of Heaven, which everyone who's listening is now just listened to. Um, so, Vincent, I have read a bunch of your stuff and I've I've noticed this theme of religion throughout some of your stories and i've always wanted to ask you like how much does religion really work into when you're writing well i had a very religious upbringing i am now an atheist Mm -hmm. but it's the content is not retaliatory Uh, i have an anthropological interest in religion the uh what's the word i'm looking for (laughs) The, the how it affects um, like humans in general and how uh, we function with each other. Question? Why people believe. Ah. Why people believe and the imagery and the mythology, ritual, all those aspects. But it's usually a metaphor when I use it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of come to represent bureaucracy, and that's something you see over and over again in my short stories and my novels, especially in tyranny, tyranny of heaven. Yeah. It represents an ultimate bureaucracy. It's the same in carrot field and in most of them. So the target isn't usually religion. Mm-hmm. I love the feeling of a religious story, possibly because I grew up with them and they have sort of emotional and imaginative associations. 
Um, and it's very unique feeling. You can never mistake a religious story for a secular story. True. Once you, but uh, for the most part, it, it's just come to represent bureaucracy. It, it just extends from the idea, if you look at it on the surface, you would think, how does this work? How on earth does anything get done? And it doesn't seem like anyone's paying attention. And then it, it reminds you of things like Stalinist Soviet Union mm-hmm. and, you know, need I say, you know, Hitler's Germany and, and other totalitarian regimes where vast evils were being carried out by clerks and secretaries and civil servants who would show up at nine and go home at five. And in between, they do a lot of filing. But what was in the files were the extermination of huge groups of people and the imprisonment of the innocent and suppression of uh, free expression and so on. And there's something that, that to me is the ultimate horror. Yeah. And I've possibly growing up during the Reagan Thatcher era Mm -hmm. and with Watergate. So I was born in 73. Nixon was still president. I grew up here in about Watergate and then, we had this dystopian decade, which is very Orwellian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for whatever reason, that came. I became fascinated with those kinds of regimes when I was uh, 12 or 13 and started reading all these books and source documents. And it finds expression that way. It's, it's about how mundane that kind of evil is. Yeah, and and that just like in your last like section of Tyranny of Heaven, where you get more into, um, it's less about the history of how they got there and more about where hell is now and where our narrator is. That was the part that really, really struck me was what you just said about the clerks. You know, they do their nine to five thing. They just do their job and they go home. And that was exactly what these imps and these devils were doing. Is yeah, I'm just logging away centuries of torment and horror and awfulness that is just mm-hmm. because of this one just uh, dickish god is the best <laughs> word I can come one up idiot. with. <laughs> that was, you know, I was thinking specifically of uh, Mussolini. Yeah. He, he's, he's like, he's been forgotten because he was such a tool. You yeah. know? But I, I was thinking specifically of someone like Mussolini, just an ego who is looking for a seat of power to project his ego on the world. Uh, And that was my my version of Lucifer. This was supposed to be an enormous novel, but it it would really require, you know, two or three years to write that. Mm -hmm. And it would really require me to be in a position where there was a publishing deal before I wrote it because it would take such a amount of time to write it. So I boiled down into, <laughs> this is like the Cliff Notes version. Uh, and the, the last section is actually would be the meat of the novel. Gotcha. It's the, the framing device. And this character discovers what is called the Satanic Book of Wisdom, which is the, mm. the name of the novel version. And this has the history and all these things that have been rumor rumored to have happened he discovers are true this book that's not supposed to exist exists and it has the real history and he becomes enlightened as to what's really going on 
the slight discomfort he's always had with the world around him turns out to be correct. And in, in fact, demanding a, a much stronger reaction to what's happening and what was lost. Wow. That would be, that's like, that's another epic novel, but just based in hell by the, you know, wow. I just, I I really like the ties in between you know, like politics and religion and because religion really is like some of the oldest horror stories ever. <laughs> I love how you tied those in. Very strong horror all throughout. It's incredibly graphic and, and full of dark, uh, murky horror stories. So which um, I come from a Roman Catholic background, so I see a lot of that baked into it. But what was your upbringing as far as religion goes? Well, this will explain a lot. Uh, I was a Jehovah's Witness, oh. which is, um, you know, it's a very self-enclosed world. Mm-hmm. And it is very bureaucratic. So uh, a lot of a lot of these influences came from that. There's there's a lot of paperwork that you're asked to fill out, and there's, everything's on schedule. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, eventually, I I decided that wasn't for me, mm-hmm. and, and I left. And then later on, I came to the conclusion that I myself don't personally believe in magic or the supernatural or anything like that. But uh, that stayed with me. And I remember uh, having a yearning to have a more pure spiritual experience because it was so much like almost like having a job yeah. is the way it's structured. And that definitely bled through and, and feeds through uh, continuously in what I write. <clears throat> oh, that's interesting. Because now, like, I'm just thinking about all these stories that I've read from you and seeing them ever so slightly differently now, like in a good way. Like, there's just an extra layer of depth to each of these now. Oh, that's, that's cool. (laughs) Cause it is our pasts that, you know, affect our fiction massively. Mm. Um, absolutely. The, the theme of the story, it's not really expressed in the short version. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I think you can see it going there at the end. The theme of the story is if you think of this, fictional version of heaven that I have and this fictional version of hell yeah, and how it's the, uh, the virtuous who are tormented yeah, and it's the wicked who are rewarded. It's to know how close you are to doing the right thing by how close you are to heaven. Wow. Oh man. And, and in- <laughs> the virtuous don't go to heaven. In the novel version, supposedly after dying on the cross, in in uh, some mythology, Jesus goes to hell to free souls. Hmm. In in my version, he the crucifixion was off schedule. That was not schedule. Was not supposed to happen, and, and and it had no effect. He did it out of his conscience, and for that he's he's exiled to hell. And our main character finds out he's out there. He gets involved with the underground and the insurgents and, and all of this stuff. And really the big thing would be to cut through all the confusion and talk to Jesus. Right. Right. And right towards the end, right before he, the character gets nabbed and goes through the Winston Smith treatment, 
uh, he, he actually goes out into the last bit of wilderness and meets Jesus. And Jesus tells him, everyone must be crucified. He, I didn't do it to be crucified for people. I did it as an example. <sighs> Everybody must be crucified. You must make a sacrifice for what you know is right. There's no avoiding it. There's no dodging that. It, you have to do it. Whatever it is at some point in your life, you have to get up on on the cross. And now that was my interpretation of that. That's really the theme of the story. You have Satan who's willing to do that, and then you have his brother, Lucifer, who's not willing to do that and is self-serving. And, of right. course, he's well-loved in heaven. Whew, that just gave me chills. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, everyone must, su- like, you have to suffer for what you think is right. Wow. That's a powerful message, my dear. <laughs> thank you. Whew. You know, these are things that came to mind over the past, since, really, I, I, don't, I don't want to pinpoint any one particular president, because I ended up dis- disliking them all, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> Just the political climate as it's mutated since, say, 2000. Uh, and there are vast numbers uh, of people who are, they're rightfully hot under the collar, but there, there seems to be a lack of self-examination. And I, I find it impossible to align with any movement because they indulge in propaganda mm-hmm. and... Uh, falsification of facts and you know fear tactics and threat tactics and it's I don't see any good guys you know I see a lot of gray guys yeah. out there and to me the power comes from the individual and individual choices and the most powerful thing you can do I'm not saying don't be aware or don't take political action or don't vote or, or any of that but the first thing you have to have straight is yourself and the world really is every next person that you see and how you treat them. You start from that and it it ripples out. So I put the responsibility back on the individual. There are these vast, chaotic, violent nightmare scenarios unfolding is really what can you do? Mm -hmm. What can you do? We've tried war and, massive protests and sanctions and or revolutions and these things don't really work. It's up to individuals to make their their own immediate environment a better place. And it starts with an inner revolution. And that's really the, th- the whole point of the story. And of course, where I leave it off in the short story, you know this character is not mm-hmm. going to have a happy ending. No. He's, he's put himself against all the power of the world, but it's where he gets his hope. Yeah, finding he those have moments. Exactly, is put it putting it out a tiny little bit is to to be an individual in a, in a mass collective that has gone horribly wrong, and that's how I see any individual in the world today. The systems fail us. We have to become independent of the system. That doesn't mean overthrowing the system, you know, radically revising everything Mm -hmm. or revolution or anything crazy like that. But on a street level, on a personal level, 
you can do things that are far more revolutionary for actual people that you meet. You know, again, I'm not saying stick your head in the sand, but what can you actually do about a tsunami that hits Japan or someplace? You know, you can send money for relief, you Mm -hmm. can give charity, and that's great. But there seem to be a lot of, there's a lot of, being aware and sympathizing is not action. Right. There are people right around you who need you. And if you're moved by the plight of people suffering anywhere in the world, well, look for them around you. Not that we don't need our people to fly out there, you know, part of the the UN and and, and part of the military or whatever and humanitarian relief. Of course we need that. But the average person's not going to do that, can't do that. They have responsibilities. They have bills to pay. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just being an, an... nonstop junkie to catastrophe news. Mm, yeah. There is something you can do. Just look around you. There are people who need emotional support. Yeah. You need someone to listen to who need a small favor. Those accumulate and then no one ever has to know about it. It's not the same thing as saving the world, but for one day you could save someone's world with one compassionate and generous and thoughtful act again just beautiful (laughs) i love that and it it really is because like i personally am looking at just i mean it's hard not to look at the world at large right now and go how can i do anything to make any difference whatsoever right now like sure showing up at a protest but what does that really do for the people who are stuck you know bring some Mm -hmm. water bring some food makes up bigger difference ever you know what i mean and i i just think i think that's gorgeous and i like that that's where this story of torment and horror and like a historically entrenched world is coming from it makes it something that's on its surface level horror into something that we can Mm -hmm. really take something extra out of thank you that's my intent with using genre is to really examine it and see what its dimensions are and and use it to simply, you know, say things very directly. Is it within as you say, within all the horror, there there's something deeper, I hope, and something more meaningful that the reader can take away with them. Yeah, otherwise <clears throat> I yeah, I might have been one of those people you know, the, the uh, writers are more liberal about this because there's now a genre culture to be a mm-hmm. part of. But you, you hear them say, it always annoys me, but you hear them say, oh, yes, I love Dungeons and Dragons and Star Trek. And then I, then I discovered girls, you know, and these are people who write very mainstream or very literate, you know, literary Pulitzer Prize winning type fiction mm-hmm. and things like that. But for me, the opposite happened. You know, I started seeing my real life reflected in the genre. So it's a, I, I'm still, I use the genre. I'm not in any one genre, but I use it to write the same kinds of things I would if I had quote unquote outgrown it. Right. <laughs> and moved on. Uh, and of course, I mean, you talk about horror, I, Clive Barker. Yeah. Absolute genius. Wrote some of the d- deepest, richest novels of our time 
a Magicas, one of the all-time greatest fantasy novels. You know, and mm-hmm. it, it's hard because you just can't recommend it to anybody. Right. <laughs> you, you, you think Game of Thrones is sexually explicit? You have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and it's a thousand pages long. Yep. But he he's someone that really turned me on to this idea uh, that you could you could mix genres and you could you could say things with the genre. It's every whether it's a movie or it's a book whether it's a comic book, whatever. It's a medium, not a genre. The medium contains genre. Right. Genre doesn't contain the medium. That's the hard line thinking that makes it hard for a writer like me to slip under the radar or <laughs> jump yeah. over the wall because there's always someone who has a nose like a bloodhound who'll go, <laughs> wait, this isn't 100% pure. Right. I sent something else happening here. Are you a true believer? <laughs> oh, you caught me. That's right. It <laughs> goes a little bit. I colored a little bit outside of the line. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Eraser. White out. Get in the line. Put that back in that genre line. It's really important. <laughs> you, uh, I don't know if you've had any uh, real experience with the publishing industry, but it is no. like that. It's like getting your wrist slapped with a ruler for infinity. But uh, that's why I've stepped away because I respect them, but they do what they do. Yeah. And I do what I do. And that's where the indie publishing comes in handy because where you don't quite fit means you have to make your own nest. (laughs) I really believe in it. I really believe in it. It's it's a lot of hard work Mm -hmm. and you really got to be dedicated to it and dedicated to quality. Uh, And it's, Anything you do independently should be equal or better quality than anything that comes out of a, a major publishing house. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only way the image will be reformed. And people will stop saying self-published and begin to say independent publisher. Yeah. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication, but yes. I encourage it. I will, I will continue to do things on my own. Mm-hmm. But there's still that mountain to be climbed. I want to get to the top <laughs> just once in my life and say, I did it. It's a hardcover and there's a little book tour. And yeah. Well, I think uh, the people listening are probably on that blend of the line where they like things that aren't necessarily normal because this is the Wicked Library. <laughs> so God if, bless them all. <laughs> seriously. As an atheist. So, as an atheist, says the atheist. Um, so if any of you uh, want to reach out to Vincent Asaro and learn some more about his work, um, Vincent, I believe they can find you on Twitter at Vincent Asaro. And where that else can they find you? Google Plus, mm-hmm. uh, Vincent Asaro, uh, carrotfieldchronicles.com. Uh, those are my outlets. Perfect. And if you guys want to email me from there. Oh, there you go. And of course, uh, from any of those places, you can email me, contact me, message me through Twitter, through the website. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions uh, about my work. Uh, I'd love to hear from anyone. And of course, Carrot Field is for sale in ebook and trade paperback format on Amazon.com. Yes. And if. Um... I just I want to say to everyone, if you liked Animal Farm in particular, 
Um, Carrot Field is like a blend of that with The Hobbit slash Lord of the Rings. So go read it. It's awesome. Um, And then the other thing that I wanted to pop in there was Something in the Dark is Vincent's collection of horror short stories. If you're, you're not as much at the outside of the lines for genre, go enjoy that one. And thank you guys for listening. I'm Jeanette Andromeda, and you can find me on HorrorMade.com. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this story. Yay! Good job, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a hell of an editing job. We both had, uh, we both had ice cream brain for a moment. I, oh, uh, my gosh. I, uh, uh. <laughs> you just hit me with so many, like, just big like big thoughts there i appreciate it by the way it's just like certain things you said just made me want to sit there and think for a minute i was like oh wait we're recording i should actually respond <laughs> ice cream brain i got is a those big <laughs> you do i love it love it by sleepy mommy love gore love the name the wicked library is the best well-written stories with great casting i've listened to every episode at least twice if you're looking for entertaining stories great casting and a bit of horror click here that librarian though This is a great horror podcast I just found. Excellent narration, sound effects, music, and plots. The host, the librarian, well, I'm I'm kind of the host, but it's all right. He's the big guy. He's the one that signs the checks, you know, so. Reminds me of a new twist on old classics like The Crypt Keeper, Elvira, or Vincent Price. I really enjoy listening to these on my way to work every day. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for the review. Buy Swamp Booty. All right, then. Podcast is great. Great production. Great storytelling. Oh, wait. It's you. It's it's that review. I work so hard to try not to have this, but I do live here. So no matter how hard I try, I guess part of it is going to slip through. So just for you and just because you like it. Buy Swamp Booty. This podcast is great. Great production, great storytelling, and it's also a plus that the narrator has a hint of that Western PA Inzer accent. Makes me miss home. Jumbo. Gum band. You better be careful out there. It's slippy. Don't fall in the jagger bushes. Thanks for listening, and thanks for reviewing. Bye, two-foot giant. I don't know if that's a giant with two feet or if that's a giant that's two feet tall, which isn't, well, all right. Oh, I get it. Just start listening. Awesome writing, character acting, sound editing. It's all just amazingly done. You should listen by Bojuni. Oh, no, by Bojum with an exclamation point. I listen to a few fiction podcasts and I have no problem saying for the record that this is great. Tell you what, listen, you won't be disappointed. Seeking Runner. I know what that's a reference to. By Seeking Runner. Love the podcast. Very professional and scary. Please keep them coming. Last but not least, 
by Family Rick. Great Escape. I've only recently discovered TWL, and I'm so glad I did. This is truly modern storytelling at its best. After a long, hard, stressful day, enduring an uninspired life, or after being forced to hear about another idiotic presidential tweet storm, I just want to find a relaxing, non-toxic escape. TWL is just that. Each episode brightens my week, but the library of episodes ensures I can always slip into my happy place as needed. I don't know who to thank for this awesome podcast, but thank you, I do. And thank you, we do, for all of you taking the time to rate and review the show in iTunes. Those five-star ratings and reviews mean a lot to us, not only because we put so much time into making it, but also because it does help us get up in the charts. It does keep us there so other folks can find us. So again, thank you so much for that. And also a very special thank you to those who support the show on Patreon. Without you, the show could not be made. Until next time. This has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead. Leave the lights on. It makes it easier for God to see what you're doing with your two-foot giant.